Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Support for the California Report comes from Personal Capital, helping people take control of their finances with financial tools and objective advice from a fiduciary advisor. PersonalCapital.com. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at Irvine.org. And... Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, focused on finding exceptional people and helping them do more for others together. On the web at SchmidtFutures.com. This is the California Report magazine. I'm Susie Rocho in for Sasha Coca. Oh, big sandwich there. From the nine and the two, and now it's on. That's the sound of Demolition Derby. The crash from smash from sport had its heyday in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. But these days, the derbies are featured at county fairs and special events at racetracks, like this one at Irwindale Speedway, about 30 minutes east of Los Angeles. On this night, the track is hosting 13 women and their cars for the Derby Divas Demolition Derby. Reporter Peter Gilstrap takes us into the pit to meet them. The Irwindale Speedway Grandstand is filled with thousands of people hungry for destruction. After a full night of standard races, meaning cars that just go around in a circle real fast, the place is humming with energy. It feels like a Saturday night at the county fair. The air smells like a mixture of cotton candy vape smoke, gasoline, and real cotton candy. But in the pit behind the track, The Derby Divas stand around their cars under the lights, bored and nervous. Their crews of friends and family members make last-minute tweaks to the aging rides. Nissans and Hondas, Fords and Buicks, making sure they can run one last time. They need to survive through 20 minutes of sheer driving hell. My name is Cheryl Hyland from Hawthorne, California. That one, this one, they all have check engine lights still on them because these could literally come from the junkyard. Except, uh, you know, you also have giant eyelashes on the front of your... That's my, that's my, as you can see, I have them. That's my signature. Each car is decked out with the driver's personalized touches. They look like small discount parade floats. My name is Becca Doyle. I am from Ventura, which is just a few hours up the coast. We get to paint them however we want to. Uh, That's always my favorite part is decorating them. I like to put a little sparkle on my cars. And then we just go out and destroy them. There's a Buick Century painted up like a cop car. It says Party Patrol on the side, with big red beer pong solo cups stuck on the roof. There's also a car with a furry, life-sized unicorn head mounted on the roof. You're going to want to remember that for later. 
It all seems like part performance art, part Viking funeral. I always think it's really funny that somebody went to the car lot and bought this car. Brand new, really excited, they got their brand new car. And they have no idea this is the send-off it's going to get. It's going to get crushed and people are going to watch it and they probably had great memories in this car. It's going to get one hell of a send-off. My name is Nicole Emma and I'm from Burbank, California, born and raised. And I'm here, my second derby, try and win it this time. What made you want to start doing this? I ran out of other crazy stuff to do. <laughs> I'm not married, no kids. All the times you want to just slam into people on the freeways, you can do it here. So it's a lot of aggression getting released. In 2019, I was on the 101 freeway and I was in dead stop traffic and a car never stopped, never saw the traffic and he hit the rear end of my car going 50 miles an hour. And that left me with substantial injuries, but it also left me with very severe PTSD in cars. Doyle tried talk therapy, she tried anti-anxiety meds, then she had a breakthrough idea, demolition derby. I'm just gonna try it. I'm just gonna see if this helps. If I show myself that I can have all these extra car accidents and walk away from it and be okay, maybe this will change things for me. To me, it means the world because, like I said, there's so few women in this sport and in motorsports in general. So it's very empowering to come together with women that are similar to you, have a similar interest. It's rare to find people like that. You know, I think if I were to go up to a random woman in Target and be like, do you want to drive in a demolition derby with me? They'd think I'm missing all my nuts and bolts up there. The guys that I race with, they treat me like anybody else. I haven't had any backlash as far as being a woman in racing. They've all embraced it. You definitely get some double looks like, oh, there's there's a woman out there. Like, that's different. Like, you're different. And I welcome it because when I was a little girl, there were no women for me to cheer for. So it helps me want to even drive better knowing that I'm the person those little girls up in the stands are looking up to that day. You know, the women come out and like, you go girl, like, that you can do this too. Anybody can do this. People want to see destruction, so give them destruction. Let me ask you something, Cheryl. Do you think that there's anything about being a female that gives you any kind of edge in Demolition Derby over men? Uh, you know what, I think we're more aggressive. I'll be honest with you. You'll see tonight. I've been in co-ed derbies, I've seen them. They kind of chase each other around. I don't know what it is, hormones, I don't know. We just have that something to prove. We got a lot of pent up anger. I don't know, but we just got there and let it go. And now it's time to let it go. The drivers put on their helmets and climb into their vehicles, quite literally. The windows have been removed and the doors are welded shut. Other than the driver's seat, Inside, the cars are stripped of everything, and that includes dashboard stereos, which can quickly become flying projectiles. But that means no personal soundtrack to destruction. If you're able to play some in the car, what would you choose? ACDC is good. Yeah, it, it works. <laughs> which song? TNT. <laughs> TNT, dynamite. They line up in formation, gun the engines, and head toward the field of battle. And then it's on. The cars are cordoned off in a small area in the middle of the track for maximum contact. There's nowhere to hide. And you can't just sit. You've got to keep moving or risk disqualification. 
ramming each other in reverse and slamming head-on. Bumpers get ripped away, fenders go flying, tires blow out and drivers continue on rims alone. Wheels pop off and roll aside slowly, teetering like cartoon wreckage. Axles break, rotors grind, radiators overheat, spouting smoke and water, and the transmissions... Good God, the wounded transmissions... They stick and grind and scream, struggling to get into gear, fighting to survive. It's total vehicular carnage. One by one, the cars die off as the field narrows. Now, thick red curtains of sparks spew from the underbellies of the few remaining rides as they make sounds you just never hear cars make in real life. Derbies usually end just like a pistol duel or America's Next Top Model. The last one standing is the winner. But this derby is timed out and judged on battering skill and demolition finesse. And now, as the smoke from dead engines drifts across the track, littered with twisted auto parts like a Mad Max battlefield, the winner is declared. But it's not Becca or Cheryl or Maria or Nicole. It's car number 93, driven by derby diva Jesse DeNike. And then, coming through the mayhem, there's Nicole. So how do I, how, did I, how was it? In it's brutal. I mean, they, they like demolish you. I love it. It was awesome. Fierce. Do you ever feel sorry for the car? I did feel a little bit sorry for the unicorn. I saw a unicorn go flying and I was like, oh, hi. I drove that car hard. <laughs> I drove it hard and I, I lost my front tire, so I was sparking it up a storm. Uh, I kind of became a human sparkler, but doing the demo derby helped seal the deal for me to take that next step in my healing progression. So it was a positive night for Becca Doyle and her PTSD. And all those little girls in the stands with visions of demolition in their heads had someone to cheer for. For the California Report, I'm Peter Gilstrap in Irwindale. The pandemic has been a tough time for a lot of us. Many people tried to figure out new ways to connect to break through the isolation. Well, KQED's Silicon Valley reporter, Aditi Banlamudi, actually started dating someone new during lockdown. Host Sasha Koka sat down with Aditi, who says that the limitations of sheltering in place actually led to deeper connection, one that she never expected. Hey there, Aditi. Hey, Sasha. So tell us, how did you decide that you wanted to start dating in the middle of lockdown in the pandemic? Well, I moved to California from the East Coast in January of 2020. Now, all my friends and family are on the East Coast, and so I felt really lonely. And then the pandemic hit, and it only made things worse. And it was around August of 2020 when things were starting to look okay. People were dining outdoors. More things were opening up. I just got tired of sitting around, and I thought it was maybe safe enough if I just got back out there. A cousin suggested I try this dating app called Hinge. Hinge, the dating app designed to be deleted. So we've invited you on the show to tell us all the juicy details because 
I'm well, I guess I'm old enough to be kind of like an auntie, a nosy auntie. And <laughs> I want to know all the juicy details. Like, how did it work when people were in lockdown during COVID and you were meeting people? I mean, were you worried about meeting them in person? Were you going to just try to meet people outside? I was hesitant to just step outside and start meeting strangers in person. So I decided that the first date with any guy would have to be over a video. And it was kind of a test, too. I figured video dates with strangers are already kind of awkward. But if he can hold a conversation and it didn't feel like another Zoom meeting, like maybe this was somebody I could talk to for a while. Some guys insisted on meeting in person at first, which... I wasn't comfortable with, so I just didn't pursue those people. And then of the guys who did agree to meet over FaceTime, some either didn't put in much effort or there just wasn't a connection, no no spark. What do you mean putting in much effort over FaceTime? I mean, it doesn't take that much effort to talk to somebody over a screen, right? Honestly, I just wanted to talk to people um, just to get to know them and see if there was any chemistry. Some guys would talk over me or be super self-involved and talk about themselves the entire date. I actually kept a spreadsheet. You did not. I did. I just wanted to keep track of who I was talking to and how they treated me. I mean, there were guys out there who you can tell through the screen had not showered for days. Uh. It took a lot, a lot of time. Um, I think I talked seriously to like eight people, eight guys, before meeting Shayshav. My name is Shayshav Gandhi. I go by Shayshav. He was instantly very different from the rest. Unlike other guys who would DM me with a generic question or comment about my pictures on Hinge, Shayshav actually started talking to me about my interests that I described on the app. He took time to read my profile and try to get to know me. What a concept, right? Well, it turns out we had a lot of things in common. We liked the same TV show, Fleabag. He liked playing the guitar and was a huge Simon and Garfunkel fan, which is the music I grew up listening to. We actually talked about liking that song, America. He was warm and put me at ease. Let us be lovers, we'll marry our fortunes together. So who is he? I mean, what does he do? What's his family like? What did you learn about him and his background on that first date? I guess I'm now really being a nosy auntie, but I want to (laughs) know. He's a software engineer for a tech company, and he moved from Mumbai to the U.S. about five years ago. That sounds like your parents' dream. Yeah. This, this was kind of a big deal for me because I had never dated anyone Indian, especially someone who was from India. When I was younger, I was totally against the idea because I knew it was what my parents wanted and I kind of wanted to rebel. Mm-hmm. And it may not seem like a huge difference because we're both Indian, but it's basically like dating someone from a foreign country. I mean, I grew up American on McDonald's Happy Meals. Shayshiv grew up with Happy Meals, too, but with the McAlu Tiki. So did you meet him for a date in person right after that FaceTime chat? Yeah, a couple days after our video date. We decided to meet in person, but outdoors. We met up on a Saturday afternoon at Golden Gate Park for a long walk and then to Land's End to watch the sunset. Time flew by. I mean, we were able to talk effortlessly with each other. I learned that he had to be really careful about COVID exposure because he lived with his parents and sister. Towards the end of the day, things were going well, so we decided to grab a burrito for dinner and just eat outside six feet apart. And it was only then that I actually saw his full unmasked face. 
before we disembarked we decided that oh like you know we would do a second date and and you had mentioned like oh let's do it on next sunday and i was like man i have to wait a whole week a week and eight days to see her again so it sounds like you felt pretty good about him after that first date Yeah, I drove back home feeling giddy and excited. I mean, there was definitely a spark, but I tried to keep my expectations low. And dating in the pandemic made me realize that there are so many distractions when dating in normal times. There's just so many elements of where we're going on a date, what I'm going to wear, what his texting game is like, just so much of playing the field. But when you're dating in a pandemic, you have to be honest with yourself about what you're looking for and whether the person you're seeing is really giving that to you. Keeping our distance, we had to rely on conversation to keep the mood going. We had to find creative, safe outdoor activities to do together. Like listening to live music at the farmer's market on Clement Street in San Francisco. I started thinking, maybe this is it. Maybe I found my person. And the feeling was mutual. As like the dates went on and as we like started talking about like music and like our lives and you being genuinely interested in 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 my background, that was when it was, like, starting to solidify. Shayshiv plays the guitar, and I've been known to sing from time to time. We love the song Winter is Cold by Caroline Says. So you guys are getting closer to each other at this point, but there's still a pandemic going on. People still aren't vaccinated. When did you feel comfortable meeting inside together? We became exclusive pretty soon after we started seeing each other. And a couple months after the first date, we decided it was safe enough to meet indoors if we were only seeing each other. And did you decide it was safe enough to take your masks off and have a first kiss? Oi, Sasha, stop being a nosy auntie. My parents are listening. Okay, okay, I know I'm getting really nosy. Um, But on the topic of your parents, I do want to know, when did you decide you were going to tell them about Cheshav? Well, both sets of parents are first-generation Indian immigrants. So my parents immigrated back in the 80s, and Cheshav's parents just five years ago. So Cheshav and I both knew that the moment we told our parents about each other, they would start planning the wedding, which wasn't ideal. What are you making? I'm I'm making some sambar. And then I'm going to make some um, aloo masala for masala dosa. I traveled back to Georgia in November to tell my parents about him. At this point, Cheshav and I had been seeing each other for about four months. I don't know. I think every every parent has this worry about, you know, um, who are they? What are they about? I hope they're, they're from a good family. I hope they are, you know, good person, you know, good principles, honest, you know with integrity. And so all of those types of questions, you know, came in the mind. Which I could understand, and I answered them the best I could. Fortunately, they were happy with my answers and, just as I predicted, started planning the wedding. All said and done, I'm an Asian parent. You tell me you met someone in your life who's special to you. Okay, I'm three steps ahead of you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to San Francisco. The local time is 1.21 p.m. After my visit, I headed back to the Bay, where COVID infection rates were rising. Sheshev and I decided we needed to be more careful about spending time together. 
We didn't see each other in person for two weeks. And then on New Year's Day, I found out I got COVID. I was sick for two weeks, but the symptoms seemed to last forever. I got winded standing up. Going to the bathroom was like trekking to Mount Everest. The body aches kept me up at night. Sheshev wanted to come and nurse me back to health in my apartment, but I couldn't risk him getting sick and infecting his family. So he instead insisted on dropping off groceries outside. And after getting through a difficult winter, after getting through COVID together, I felt like we'd gone through something big. February came and I decided I wanted to introduce my parents to him over FaceTime. You feeling okay? Yeah. It's like I know they're not going to hate me, but also like, like what if they do? No. <laughs> can you see us? Yeah. Yeah, we can yeah. see you. Yeah. Can you it's so good to see you. Yeah. <laughs> see you, meet you. I know. Turns out both my mom and Cheshev are from Mumbai. Know, Fun fact, yeah. there's a neighborhood in Mumbai called Santa Cruz. Yeah, Aditi tells me, were you in like Santa Cruz? Santa Cruz. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Santa Cruz East. Oh, okay, nice, yeah. My my great-grandmother used to live in Ville Parle East. Yeah. His parents and mine met over FaceTime after that and immediately started discussing setting an auspicious date for the engagement ceremony. But to be honest, I didn't really feel comfortable with settling on an engagement date before my parents had actually met Cheshev in person. I mean, there's only so much you can know about a person over just FaceTime. And I wanted to get their blessing. This is a big deal. So in April, about seven months after Cheshev and I started dating, we took COVID tests, waited for a negative result, and then got on a plane to Georgia. Uh, hey, what am I like? Am I supposed? I can't hug them. So. Yeah, you can't hug them. We'll do this later. Everything was moving so fast, and we didn't have a lot of time to reflect on what was happening. This huge thing was happening. It's been seven and a half months, and and like you know, like you like have these micro moments of like questioning yourself whether this is like some sort of infatuation or like mm. illusion and. And like all of that, yeah, you're, and this yeah. stuff only happens when, when I'm not with you. And I felt the you same way. Like. Even though we'd only known each other for about half a year, I could so clearly see that I wanted to marry him, that we would make each other happy. I had never felt more sure of anything. Sheshev met my parents, my brother and sister, in April. And then in May, we went for a hike at Land's End, just like we had for our first date. I'll be one to be. Will you marry me? Uh, you got it the other way around. Yeah. I will. <laughs> oh, wait, this one. Uh. <laughs> did Sheshev actually record himself proposing? He did, he did. I know, he's a gem. Wow. He's a gem. In June, my parents came to California for the Hindu engagement ceremony. And, of course, I recorded it. You can hear a priest officiating the event in the background. So they are exchanging their daughter and their son, right? He is going to be their son, son, not son-in-law. They are treating him as their son. And they are going to treat her as their daughter, not daughter-in-law, you know? If you treat her so that was the small engagement ceremony for fully vaccinated relatives and friends. We're actually getting married in court on Monday. And then we have a big Hindu wedding ceremony that's going to be on Memorial Day weekend of 2022. 
That's KQED's Silicon Valley reporter, Adidi Banlamudi, talking to the California Report's Sasha Coca. And finally today, we go back to an era when San Francisco's Chinatown was a nightlife hotspot. From the 1930s to the 60s, the sidewalks bustled at 3 a.m. And along with the busloads of tourists, there were these elegant supper clubs where you might run into celebrities like Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. KQED's Chloe Veltman met up with a former chorus girl to learn all about the glory days and find out where things stand with Chinatown's nightlife today. The Showgirl Magic Museum occupies the basement of the Clarion Performing Arts Centre located down a Chinatown back alley. And in the corner of the unassuming space, crammed with costumes, hats, jewellery and other memorabilia, there's a photo of Pat Chin posing with Frank Sinatra. That picture was taken after he filmed Pal Joey here in San Francisco. She gets too hungry for dinner at eight. Sinatra rushed over to help me off the stage, lit my cigarette, and did a lot of small talk. He was a complete gentleman. When she got to flirt with Sinatra that day in 1957, Chin was in her early 20s, working as a dancer at the Chinese Sky Room on Grant Avenue at Pine Street. It was one of around eight ritzy supper clubs in the neighborhood. But it don't take the visitor long to discover that the most popular dishes in Chinatown are oriental. Discrimination against Asian residents was rampant, and there were especially few professional opportunities for women. But the burgeoning Chinatown club scene gave some measure of financial independence to the young Asian-American women who worked in these night spots. There was also a touch of glamour. I met Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, Perez Prado, all big-time acts. So we had a lot of fun in those days. It's more play than work, actually. Chin says the clubs were clamoring for talent. They hired me immediately because they couldn't find too many Chinese girls who would be willing to reveal their legs in public. Like many other chorus girls from the neighborhood who performed three shows a night in skimpy, sequined outfits before predominantly white audiences, Chin didn't tell her family about her line of work. Yes, I kept it a secret for a long time. In the late 1960s, Chin says the elegant showgirls and big bands of Chinatown's nightclubs started to fall out of fashion. I guess people rather go see the topless performers and the uh, go-go dancers who dances inside of cages on Broadway. Around this time, more risque acts became popular in nearby North Beach, like this all-girl, topless pop band. Chin says she'd retired from the stage by then, gotten married, started a family. Chin is now in her 80s. She says she doubts those days will ever come back again. Zoning laws and, more recently, the COVID-19 pandemic have made it hard for the local club scene to bounce back. Which is a shame, because... It was so lovely then. We didn't have to worry about people hitting us over the head or robbing us. Chin's talking about the rise of racist violence against Asian seniors in places like Chinatown during the pandemic. This cane that I carry, I really don't need the cane, but that's also a good defensive weapon. Not that this former chorus girl plans to stay home anytime soon. 
Since 2004, Chin's been a member of the Grant Avenue Follies, a performance group founded by former Chinatown nightclub dancers focusing on vintage tap dance routines. Earlier this year, they got political, creating this rap in response to the racist attacks. The video went viral. The elders are your teachers, the elders are your guys. When you mess with them, you're committing suicide. Wise guy. We want to show people that you can't bully us because we will fight back. Meantime, Chin hopes both locals and visitors to Chinatown will drop in at the Showgirl Magic Museum. She says learning about the past can help people understand what's at stake in the present. For the California Report, I'm Chloe Veltzman. The California Report magazine is a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Malion. Brendan Willard is our engineer with additional mixing by Seal Muller. We had help this week from Amanda Font, Lisa Morehouse, and Alex Gonzalez. I'm Susie Rocho. Sasha Coca returns next week. This is the California Report magazine, your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Water Heaters Only, specializing in the repair and replacement of water heaters since 1968. Licensed and insured, open 24 hours a day, every day. Learn more at waterheatersonly.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, focused on finding exceptional people and helping them do more for others together, on the web at schmidtfutures.com. And Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits, stanfordhealthcare.org slash adaptingcare. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. 
Thank you for listening and thank you for your support.